So I got a note this morning that a message, a question had been placed in the bell. And it said, this question is about form and emptiness, which is what the Heart Sutra is all about. And what role emptiness plays in Buddhist practice. And uh, I don't have a PhD or any kind of degree diploma in Buddhist studies, but just in my own personal experience, I don't know of anyone who who can express this profound understanding in Buddhism more eloquently and more accessibly than our own teacher, Tai. Um, so I'd like to share some of Tai's poetry, his poetic prose on this. Um, it's almost like reciting a sutra, except it's in words that we use regularly in the 21st century. Tai says, emptiness always means empty of something. A cup is empty of water. A bowl is empty of soup. The bell was empty of questions until our friend shared this one. We are empty of a separate, independent self. We cannot be by ourselves alone. We can only interbe with everything else in the cosmos. The practice is to nourish the insight into emptiness all day long. Wherever we go, we touch the nature of emptiness in everything we contact. We look deeply at the table, the blue sky, our friend, the mountain, the river, our anger, and our happiness, and see that all these are empty of a separate self. When we touch these things deeply, we see the interbeing and interpenetrating nature of all that is. Emptiness does not mean non-existence. It means interdependent co-arising, impermanence and non-self. When we first hear about emptiness, we feel a little frightened. But after practicing for a while, we see that things do exist only in a different way than we thought. Emptiness is the middle way between existent and non-existent. The beautiful flower does not become empty when it fades and dies. It is already empty in its essence. Looking deeply, we see that the flower is made of non-flower elements, sunlight, 
space, clouds, earth. It is empty of a separate independent self. We have to learn to see ourselves in things that we thought were outside of ourselves in order to dissolve false boundaries. To say that the flower exists is not exactly correct, but to say that it does not exist is also not correct. True emptiness is called wondrous being because it goes beyond existence and non-existence. When we eat, we need to practice emptiness. I am this food, this food is me. One day in Canada, I was eating lunch with the Sangha and a student looked up at me and said, I am nourishing you. He was practicing the concentration on emptiness. Every time we look at our plate of food, we can contemplate the impermanent non-self nature of food. This is deep practice because it can help us see interdependent co-arising. The one who eats and the food that is eaten are both by nature empty. That's why the communication between them is perfect. When we practice walking meditation in a relaxed, peaceful way, it is the same. We step not just for ourselves, but for the world. Everyone we cherish will someday get sick and die. If we do not practice the meditation on emptiness, when it happens, we will be overwhelmed. The concentration on emptiness is a way of staying in touch with life as it is, but it has to be practiced and not just talked about. We observe our body and see all the causes and conditions that have brought it to be. Our parents, our country, the air, and even future generations. We go beyond time and space, me and mine, and taste true liberation. If we only study emptiness as a philosophy, it will not be a door of liberation. Emptiness is a door of liberation when we penetrate it deeply and we realize interdependent co-arising and the interbeing nature of everything that is. And as Tai invites us, I'd like to suggest that we practice together right now. Tai offered us a guided meditation for doing this. He composed this for us to touch to touch the truth of emptiness and interbeing. Please sit comfortably. Just allow Thai's meditation instruction, Thai's guidance 
to fall on the soil of your mind like a soft rain. There's nothing we need to pursue. Let's just receive. Becoming aware of our breathing in and out. Breathing in. I'm aware of a wave on the ocean, perhaps on Flathead Lake. Breathing out, I smile to the wave on the ocean, on the lake. Wave on the ocean or the lake. Smiling. Breathing in, I'm aware of the water in the wave. Breathing out, I smile to the water in the wave. Water in wave. Smiling. Breathing in, I see the birth of a wave. Breathing out, I smile to the birth of a wave. The wind, the action of the wave before manifesting as this wave. Birth of a wave, smiling. Breathing in, I see the death of a wave. Breathing out, I smile to the death of the wave. The wave falls and dissolves into the lake, the ocean. Death of a wave, 
smiling. Breathing in, I see the birthless nature of the wave, the birthless nature of the water in the wave. Breathing out, I smile to the birthless nature of the water in the wave. birthless water in wave, smiling. And breathing in, I see the deathless nature of the water that forms the wave. Breathing out, I smile to the deathless nature of the water and the wave. Deathless water in the wave. Smiling. Breathing in. I see the birth of my body. Breathing out, I smile to the birth of my body. Birth of my body. Smiling. Breathing in, I see the birthless and deathless nature 
of my body. All the causes and conditions that gave rise to this body and what this body will become cause and condition for next. Breathing out, I smile to the birthless and deathless nature of my body. Body, birthless and deathless. Smiling. Thank you, our birthless and deathless bellmaster. So on this profound theme of non-self, um, you know, in Plum Village, when we prepare to receive transmission of the lamp from our teacher to author us, authorize us to teach in the lineage, we write a gatha, a poem, that expresses how the practice is living in us in that, at that time. And we used to be invited to give a short talk to the Sangha um, right after. I don't know whether that still happens nowadays, but when I received the lamp, uh, the talk that I gave was about my own practice with fears about not being good enough, and what's often called imposter syndrome and touching 
the reality of non-self. So I talked about shifting from non-self-confidence to non-self-confidence. The trust in our inherent basic goodness that that's available to me when I realize and keep remembering that I'm a wave. I'm a wave of the most miraculous water of life. You know, the opposite of death is not life. Death is part of life. The opposite of death is birth. Birth and death are words that pertain to the wave. And life is the ocean that manifests in waves. And there is no wave that is, in her essence, separate from all the other waves, not in her essence, although it is in her manifestation. So the traditional gathas, the short verses, we can say to ourselves as we go about our daily activities, and we've explored those some together in the last year or two, these gathas are a very practical dharma instrument to help us touch the truth of interbeing and emptiness all throughout our day. They remind us of the, the larger ocean of life that our waves of experience or activity are, are manifesting as a part of. And the gatha that I like to use for a long time, when I see self-judgment or self-aversion arising, or judgment or aversion toward others for that matter, is actually the one we use in the restroom. <laughs> and here's how it goes. Defiled or immaculate, increasing or decreasing. These are just concepts of the mind. The reality of interbeing is unsurpassed. So whatever parts of myself, uh, interbeing, whatever <laughs> characters outside I might be thinking about, we enter our, we're not separate. And if you'd like to continue to deepen uh, your looking into the practice of touching the reality of interbeing, you may like to read and have Dharma sharing around uh, Ty's classic books like No Death, No Fear, The Other Shore, which is about the Heart Sutra. And we call it the Heart Sutra. You know, the long name of it is the Heart of Perfect Understanding, the Heart of Prajnaparamita. It really is the heart of our whole practice. And also the diamond that cuts through illusion, which is Tai's book about the diamond sutra. I love it very much. So also this opportunity that we're having this weekend to 
look deeply together as friends on the path into how the waves of thinking affect our lives. And in this practice, when we begin seeing how much of our suffering is hitched to our thinking, it's common for a couple of things to happen. An early one is that we think, we think that thinking is the enemy and we have to stop all our thinking. And then we think, uh, do I have to quit my job? So first of all, the end of thinking isn't something that ever happens for most of us human beings. And more importantly, thinking is not our enemy. We need to be able to think in order to navigate our life. What we do want to practice letting go of is compulsive or habitual kinds of thinking unaccompanied by mindfulness. We want to cultivate our capacity to choose pathways of thinking that bring us more well-being rather than more pain and more delusion of separation. And mindfulness is not about judging or suppressing the thinking that just happened, even if it did bring pain, because blaming and suppressing is just more painful thinking and it doesn't bring any relief really. The other thing that happens as we start to really look into our thinking is we might say, oh, overwhelm is just a thought. So I can just drop it. And I feel fine about everything now. Everything's fine. That's equanimity, right? Maybe it can work like that sometimes. We just, we recognize a thought, we let go of it and there's nothing else there, but other times it just doesn't work that way. And that's why we need to do the practice of being with our emotions and our sensations as we did practice together during yesterday's talk. Someone offered this sharing in an email. In the latter half of the Dharma talk, I noticed the sneakiness of the mind. It's so true, there's many like layers, they get subtler and subtler, right? When Barbara shared, the, the issues are not overwhelming. Things are as they are. The writer says, I thought to myself, that once I could see things clearly enough, just as they are, then I could tackle them all more effectively. A new project, easy peasy. But the writer said, with the invitation to get concrete and detailed in energy outputs, I began to loosen my grasp on that project quickly, realizing it was just a recipe for more overwhelm. I think that sharing is very representative of how our thinking minds tend to operate and how our thinking interacts with sensations in the body and emotions.
what I mean about that is this practitioner shared how the mind responds to a possibility and it they started to uncover how there's still these other thoughts and emotions going on like um, you know there's so many there's so much suffering that's happening and there's a feeling about that, right? Probably often unconscious feeling of just fear or dread or despair. And so the next thought might be, I, I have to like make it all stop happening. And I have to have these projects. I have to do these things to make it all stop happening. And so, <laughs> then we feel overwhelmed and we say, I can't handle this. And then we, when we learn that that's a thought that says, I can't handle this, then it reverts to the other default thought, which is, oh, okay, so I can make it all stop happening and I need to do that. And here's, here's the key, now I get to do that. But we haven't actually stayed long enough to make contact with the deep fear and sorrow and grief that's actually driving the whole machine, right? So scientists have found that when a stimulus comes to us and we have an emotional experience of it in response, the maximum physiological lifespan in our body is 90 seconds for an emotion. 90 seconds, maximum length of an emotion in the body. So how do we manage to spend minutes or hours or days or months in outrage about something that's no longer happening. So thinking about it. Our thinking resurrects the event, plays the movie, and then that becomes the stimulus over and over to keep that emotion churning. Ty used to talk about it like cows, the digestion process of cows and how they chew their food and swallow it and then they bring it back up again and they chew it some more and they swallow it and they bring it up again and they chew it some more and they swallow it which is i'm sure exactly healthy for cows but not so healthy for us to do with thoughts and yeah emotionally driven loops of thoughts right it just keeps going and it, it actually makes us sick and there's the classical zen tale about the two monks out on a hike who come upon a fast moving river to cross. And there at the riverside is a petite lady who also needs to cross and is afraid she can't manage it. So the first monk puts her on his back, carries her across the river and sets her down. The monks continue on, but the second monk has a furrow in his brow. And some miles later, miles later, the second monk suddenly bursts out says, I cannot believe you held the body of a woman like that. And the first monk pauses and looks back at the second monk and says, brother, I let go of that woman an hour ago. Why are you still carrying her? That habit, the habits of our emotional reactivity and our thoughts, or particularly the worrying habit is such a strong one that many of us sooner or later 
may find ourselves on a retreat and we've practiced sitting and walking and eating and mindfulness and silence for a few days and that space opens up, that washing machine mind starts to come to a pause and we can actually get to see the thought arise in our mind. Hmm. Okay. What should I worry about next? I personally have experienced that and um, I don't think I'll ever forget it. <laughs> and as I mentioned yesterday, these inner interactions usually happen in less than a blink of an eye. It's very quick. The great news is that if we wholeheartedly practice to cultivate mindfulness and concentration, these habitual neural pathways can be shifted. Maybe not 100% and forever, but certainly enough to make a real difference in our suffering and our happiness in daily living and our relationships. Victor Frankl is famous for having said something that's widely paraphrased like this, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power and our freedom. And if you're interested in what I consider an excellent marriage of neuroscience and mindfulness practice in addressing anxiety as a habit, very similar to those more outward behaviors we usually think about as addiction, I recommend the work of Dr. Judson Brewer, which he calls Unwinding Anxiety. So we had an exercise yesterday and we can set aside for the moment just right now what we actually are going to do or not do. Just kind of slow down right here and be with the thoughts and feelings that came up about the prompt. <laughs> Did you have some thoughts like, oh, that can't be living as a responsible person. If I don't stay fully informed about all the harmful ways my tax dollars are being used. Here's a question that was submitted. I'm curious to hear more about true equanimity about the state of the world versus spiritual bypassing through withdrawal or denial. In practice, I want to feel more empowered to own my ability to hold something heavy with equanimity without worrying that others will confuse my equanimity with indifference and also be able to admit when I don't have the capacity for any more bad news without feeling like I'm failing in practice. So this has two distinct areas for us to contemplate together. One is what in substance is the distinction between equanimity and indifference? Jack Cornfield wrote very eloquently about this. He said, the near enemy of equanimity is indifference or callousness. We may appear serene if we say, I'm not attached. 
it doesn't matter what happens anyway, it's all transitory. We feel a certain peaceful relief, he says, because we withdraw from experience and from the energies of life. But he says, indifference is based on fear. True equanimity is not a withdrawal. True equanimity is not a withdrawal, he says, it is a balanced engagement with all aspects of life. He says it's opening to the whole of life with composure and ease of mind, accepting the beautiful and terrifying nature of all things. And how do we know which kind of energy is at work in us? when we want to practice letting go, letting go of attachment versus pushing away can be quite subtle. Best way I found is to pause and check in with the body. If the body's contracting and tensing, it's probably mainly a fear activation. And the second piece of that question is then about how do we practice with our notions and our fears about what others are thinking and saying about us. So we practice the way that we did together yesterday. What are my thoughts and beliefs about other people's thoughts and beliefs? Okay, hello, my thoughts and beliefs. You can be here. I don't have to board that train. And I also don't have to run away from it. It's here, it's passing. What are the emotions? Fear, maybe resentment. Am I gonna be all alone? Am I even like doing the right thing? What are the sensations? And most importantly, can I be with this? Can I be with this? So regarding this attitude, the attitude with which we invite our wandering mind to come back home, that we use to be willing to be with what's arising, we don't need to be harsh with ourselves about our tendency to leave and check out and go off into thinking or numbing. So this, this attitude of bringing ourselves back is often compared to gently bringing a puppy back from chasing after a bumblebee or a butterfly. Tara Brock once saw a meditator who had a pendant around her neck in the shape of a dog's bone. And it said, Sit, stay, heal. Heal was spelled H-E-A-L. A lot of how the transformation happens is that we cultivate our willingness to stay with and be with unpleasant feeling, offer it compassion and ask for support when we need to in doing that. That willingness 
to stay and to keep opening day after day is the factor of awakening called diligence. We keep remembering and forgetting and re-remembering that our feelings do matter. And we are not only our feelings. We are the loving space of awareness that recognizes and embraces them with these strong and tender arms of a wise, loving grandparent who knows from experience that this too shall pass. That's how the insight of impermanence helps to free us. And investigation is another of the factors of awakening and it can include thinking. We began the session here by investigating emptiness together. Tai's teaching includes thinking, the kind of thinking that helps to free us. Another one of our friends here was asking about what do we practice when we're really when we're really in the storm, like a a protracted storm, when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, or just simply upset about the way things are. I think many of us can relate to varying degrees. Um, I think the most important things are, first of all, as we practiced yesterday, the field of support that's here. The field of support. Our thinking can tell us it's not there. It is there. Our thinking can tell us nobody wants to help us. They do. They've been there. So we need to keep remembering. We don't, not only do we not have to do it alone, but as we've just been reflecting together, we're not separate anyway. So we don't have to make ourselves suffer with the belief that it's all on us to, to get through. You know, Ty gave us the four mantras, which later were increased to six or seven, I think. I know you're there and I'm very happy. I'm here for you is actually the first one. Second one is I know you're there and I'm very happy. The third one is I know you suffer. That's why I'm here for you. And the fourth one is, I'm suffering, please help. Also to keep remembering the teaching of, well, that we've just been talking about how 
it's called the second arrow in Buddhism, where there's an arrow that hits us, that's the initial painful thing. And then the second and the third, fourth and fifth arrows that get fired in quick succession of our self-judgment or our judgment of the other person. And then all the hatred and the fear and the resentment that that can help contribute to. So as much as possible, whatever arrow we're up to, even if it's number 10, when we wake up to that, oh, I'm firing more arrows, you know, the thing happens and like, I'm not going to make it. They're a bad person. Oh, it's probably my fault. I'm a terrible practitioner. I should be at peace. Whichever one you get to where you say, oh, I'm, I'm shooting more arrows. Just turn toward the one that's right on top, like the one that says I'm a bad practitioner. And just open as we did in the practice yesterday and say, okay, that's what, that's what something in me is believing. Okay, and what's in my body right now? Where do I feel it? What does it feel like? What's the emotion in this? Mm. Irritation at myself. Fear that it's, I'm not going to be okay if I don't stop being angry. Being with our experience as it is. And then, of course, to keep coming home over and over to what's here now. Coming home from our time traveling into how it used to be. Whether that was great or it was terrifying. Or how we expect it's going to be. And the best way to come home to the present is to know our anchor in the senses. For many of us, that anchor is our Sense, sensations of breathing, yeah? And to come home over and over, that's the diligence. When those waves of painful emotions and thoughts and sensations are coming. This is why it's called practice. It's not like, oh yeah, I get it, that makes sense. I understand now. It's practice. We train ourselves regularly and if possible, at least a little bit every day in mindfulness and concentration. And when we can sit and stay, we really do heal. It's true. <laughs>